Well, good morning again. Uh, if we have not had the chance to meet uh, yet, my name is Brian Robertson, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I'm very certainly very glad to have you uh, worshiping with us uh, this morning. I uh, recognize that for uh, some of you, this may be a, uh, a newer time. You might be newer to the church family, or maybe this is even your first Sunday here. I uh, certainly hope that you feel more like family when you leave than when you came. So, so glad to have you uh, with us. For those of you who are, are streaming the service online, uh, extend a special welcome to you as well. Hopefully today you, you are encouraged, uh, but we also invite you to whenever you're ready uh, and able, we'd love to have you join us here in person. Uh, we're continuing our, our study in the book of Nehemiah today. Uh, we're in uh, the book of Nehemiah chapter 10. So if you have a, a Bible with you or an app or something, you may want to get to Nehemiah chapter 10 or you have your journal. You may want to take some notes along the way. It might be helpful for us to go. But one of the themes that we've seen all throughout our book study or, or the book of Nehemiah study that we've been in here is that whenever you've chosen to take intentional, purposeful steps towards the way of Jesus, you will face opposition. That there are people and places and just distractions of life that will take, take your eyes off of following Jesus. That especially when you take an intentional, purposeful step towards Jesus, there will be things and people that seek to distract your eyes and your mind and your attention away, to pull you away from the things of eternal value or of eternal significance. But we also have said that a deepening your life with Jesus, a deepening a pursuit of the ways of Jesus is the greatest project you can ever give your time and attention to. It's the greatest thing that you can bring your attention and your time and your resources to deepening your life with God because all of the other aspects of your life, all the other facets of your life will flow from a life that is in union with God. When your life is really in touch and in union with the things of God, then Everything else begins to kind of fall into place. Everything else begins to take on meaning and significance and truth that only Christ can give us when we prioritize a deepening life with God. Because you and I were made for life with God. We were made where our lives would be in union with him as the scriptures describe this life without lack where he has given us everything that we need, abundant and joyful, content and peaceful, abiding in Christ. And this eternal life is only available through him. And until our life finds its meaning in union with God, then we'll always wander around just bumping into things, hoping that they bring significance, but they never do. They always overpromise and underdeliver, right? Well, this morning we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 10. And just to, for sake of catching us up very quickly, Nehemiah is sent. He's one of the Israelites in exile. He's sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And we've said in our study here that the city itself, the walls in the city itself was a visible expression of a spiritual reality. And so the Israelites knew that they were in spiritual brokenness and they needed to rebuild the city, but they also needed to rebuild their lives around purposefully pursuing Jesus. And so Nehemiah leads the people. They face the opposition. The people are seeking to distract them, seeking to kind of derail the project. And they face all the opposition and they finish the project in record-setting time. And they set, have a time where they sit before the Word and Ezra begins to teach them about the Word of God again. And they have this corporate confessional time, which is a good reminder for us. 
That if we're going to grow in the ways of Jesus, if we're going to take a step towards a purposeful pursuit of a meaningful, significant life in the kingdom of God, then we're not going to, have, we're not going to be able to just brush past the areas of our life that are not in alignment with the will of God. There will be times, in other words, when our life is confronted by the Word of God and we need a moments, and, and collectively and individually, we need moments of confession where we confess directly, specifically, that we've been off target, that we have not had our lives prioritized by the things of the Word of God. And so we have times of confession and we fall on our knees before God and we ask for mercy and for forgiveness. And we're told later in the story, later in the scriptures, that John would tell us that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That we have this great promise, but which means that the growth in Christ-likeness, deepening our life with God, comes at times with confession. Confession is a necessary step, in other words. If we're going to rebuild our lives into the ways of the kingdom, if we're going to rebuild our lives into the strength and the joyous and the abundance that God has come to give us, then we are going to need, at times, confession, where we name it for what it is, and we ask God for his mercy and grace and forgiveness along the ways, which is what the Israelites do. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 9. They have this great corporate confession where they recognize where they've been off track, and they call it for what it is. And at the end of that confession, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, they say this. In view of all of this, all that they've just confessed, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. In other words, they've recognized where they've been off track and they've begun to renew their commitment to a life that's more focused on the purposing of Jesus. To renew their commitment to follow the ways of Jesus in the very details of their life. Which reminds us, as followers of Jesus, people that are hoping to apprentice our life after Jesus, it ought to remind us that renewing our commitment to Jesus is a regular part of our life. In other words, following Jesus is not a one decision made five years ago. But following Jesus is a daily decision to die to myself and to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And following Jesus is a way that I daily have to recommit myself to the things and the purposing of, the, of pursuing the ways of Jesus. It's not one thing that happened five years ago or 50 years ago that I ride the coattails into the rest of eternity. But it's a daily decision to examine my heart, to examine my life and where I am off track to appropriately confess that times and have an appropriate recommitment to the ways of Jesus. To rebuild my life in the ways of purposefully pursuing Jesus, which is what the Israelites do. They have this moment of recommitment, and they have this moment of saying, we are going to recommit, and we're going to give it to our Levites and our priests, and they're going to fix their seals on it, which means it's a binding agreement, which means we're all agreeing publicly, this is what we're going to do. And because that's a regular part of a follower of Jesus' life, uh, of examination and a recommitment, as we look at their recommitments and what I'm going to ask us to do as we consider theirs, it'd be good for us to examine our life and to see if maybe one or more of these areas we need an aspect of recommitment as well. Maybe we've been distracted in one or more of these areas and we need to contextualize it to our setting but 
recommit our own self to publicly decide and, and declare that I want my life to be in alignment, to be rebuilt, as it were, under the purposes of Jesus. And I'm just going to ask us to prayerfully walk through this together and just ask that the Holy Spirit may be nudging in one way or another of an aspect that our lives have maybe gotten off and we, maybe we need a time of recommitment this morning, a time of recommitting our life to purposefully pursuing, intentionally rebuilding around Jesus. Fair enough? All right. First thing that they commit themselves to is to see purity in their relationships. Purity in their relationships. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, just one verse here, right? It says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. And this is a commitment not to marry foreign people. And some have actually tried to make this commitment into a race issue or into an ethnic issue. But the commitment to not marry foreign people was not an ethnic issue at all. It wasn't a racial issue at all. It's a holiness issue. It's a holiness issue because these kind of relationships were pulling their attention away from walking with the Lord. And marriage was meant to demonstrate the glory and the oneness of God. The, a relationship between a husband and a wife where they both mutually submit to one another out of reverence for God. And they display the glory of God and the oneness of a marriage that is mutually submissive and is holy and bringing about holiness in each one of them. And yet these Israelites and the people in their day had engaged in relationships and they had gotten themselves married for a whole host of other reasons. Not to be holy, but a whole lot of other reasons. Financial stability. So make sure that they were of someone who can make enough money to provide for a large family. The prestige of being tied to another family member or to be tied to married to that kind of a family. Or for their own desires. They just wanted to be married to somebody because they really liked them. And all of those kinds of priorities became the driving narrative for who they got married to, who they aligned themselves with, who they drew themselves into a close relationship with. And sometimes those driving narratives began to draw them away from God. And the Israelite, the Hebrew people, found themselves in relationships with others that weren't just indifferent about God, but actively worshipped other gods, actively worshipped other false gods, and they began to draw them into those kinds of worshipping narratives. So what they found was that these relationships, were, which were meant to glorify and edify one another towards Jesus, drew them away from Jesus, distracted them from worshiping the one true living God. And yet the Israelites decided to rebuild their life, and they recognized if they're going to rebuild their life, they're going to need to renew commitment to the inner circle core relationships around them to be ones that draw them towards holiness, not ones that draw them towards worldliness. Those key relationships. So not marrying a foreign person or somebody else was a holiness issue. It wasn't, had nothing to do with ethnicity or with racial issues at all. Because our relationships, in particular marriage, which is spoken about here, but our relationships are to be places where we are growing to be more holy. Relationships are not just what you enjoy about the person, although they should bring joy to you. They should be life-giving to you. 
But before that, they should be drawing you to Jesus. They should be helping you become more holy. They invite us and encourage us to draw our attention not to worldly desires or my own desires, but draw my attention to the giver of all desires, the very source of joy. So these relationships that we are encountering and these relationships that we engage in are not simply for our happiness, they're for our holiness, for our holiness. And no relationship with a person is, more, is this more true in your life than in your marriage relationship. So now let me try to contextualize that for us. And let me try to speak to a couple of different groups of people this morning. First of all, for those of you who are not yet married, while it may be tempting for you to look at the outward appearance of somebody and to make adjustments about who you're going to date or who you're going to marry based on the outward appearance or what kind of job they have or what kind of family they come from or all sorts of other things, the most important feature of, following, of finding someone who is going to be in that kind of close relationship including a married relationship, the most important feature is their devotion to Jesus. The most important question that you can ask when talking or thinking about somebody that you're going to get into a dating or a marriage relationship is not how hot are they, but do they love Jesus? Do they love Jesus? And for those of us who are parents, even parents of little kids, it's good for us to pray for our kids' relationships, for their friendships, for those that can circle around them. But it's also really good for us to pray for their future spouse, even if your kids are two, three, four years old, or even younger, to begin now to pray for their future spouse, that their future spouse would want to know Jesus. So if you're not yet married, the most important decision, the most important feature of your future spouse, and you want to rebuild your life on Jesus, the most important feature in your spouse is do they love Jesus? Are they devoted to Jesus? For those of us that are married, but your spouse is not yet a follower of Jesus, this is not meant to heap guilt on you. It's not meant to heap shame on you, or certainly not to advocate you leaving that marriage. On the contrary, it is a call to live such holy lives that your unbelieving spouse would see the difference of the division to Christ would make in your life, and they would come to know Jesus because of your life. They would come to know Jesus. And for those of us who are married and are, you and your spouse are both followers of Jesus, this is a reminder to grow together. That holiness is the central aspect of your life together, to pray together serve together, discuss the scriptures together. It's a holiness issue. The principle is same could, could be same uh, or extrapolated to other relationships as well. Because while the text is talking specifically about marriage, the same is true of those you closely align yourself, those inner circle friends, those that you go to advice for, Right? And it's good for us to examine those kind of people that we go to advice, those kind of people that we're most vulnerable with, those people that we invite into the more secret or more sacred aspects of our hearts, those that we share our insecurities with, those that we seek to understand. The people of Israel knew that if they were going to rebuild their life on the rounds, the things of Jesus, they needed a close-knit group of people, those close relationships that were going to lead them to holiness, 
Not lead them to whatever makes them happy, but what makes them holy. Not what makes them feel the, the desire for today, but what fulfills the desire for eternity. They needed those close relationships, and so they committed themselves to purity in their relationships, in their marriages, and in their close-knit friendship relationships. But it's not just the only thing they committed to, because they also committed to renewing a good work-life balance. In particular, they recommitted themselves to have a rhythm of rest built in to their days, built into their weeks, into their calendars. They recommitted themselves to practicing Sabbath. So not only these purity and relationships, but a work-life balance where they practiced Sabbath. So Nehemiah chapter 10, just verse 31, just one verse again. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. The Israelites recognized that they had lost their ability to have a healthy work-life balance. Rest and the rhythm of their life had gotten out of whack. To put it simply, they were overworking. They had not learned and been able to rest well. They tried to gain importance and significance by working harder, gaining more, amassing more, acquiring more. And while work is good, it's a gift from God. We were never meant to find our identity or our worth by what we do, only by whom we belong. And we can easily slide into an unhealthy work-life balance where the rhythm of rest is gone and taken away from us. And it can, we can be pulled away from a life of joy and contentment and instead of that, we're tired and we're hurried and we don't have the energy for what matters most in our life. For we have let go of a good work-life balance and the rhythm of rest has been thrown out the window and frankly, we're overworked. We're told in the scripture that Jesus is enough, but often we don't live that way. Often we don't live that way. We're overworked, we're overstressed, and if we can just be real with one another, much of it is self-induced. Much of it is self-induced. We are so susceptible to overworking, to have an unhealthy work-life balance where the rhythm of rest is just not non-existent for us. And the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, recognized that they needed to recommit their life to have a rhythm of rest, to trust God and his provision for us. To not only commit to observing a Sabbath, but even every seventh year to let the year go, cancel all debts. And I want to contextualize that for us. To bring that to understand what does that look like for us. And I'm certainly not advocating a one size fits all that we just have one day that nobody works or anything like that. Not, not a legalistic adherence to what that Sabbath might look like. But I want to ask you a question. I wonder if you have an idea when your life and your work-life balance is out of whack? Do you have an idea when you have tipped the scales and the work-life balance and the rhythm of rest is just non-existent for you? Can you sense it? Maybe you have a difficulty putting away work on the weekends or when you're off or you're constantly thinking about the next thing at work and the next thing at work and you're thinking about how to get more, or consume more, or produce more, or buy more, or get whatever. Or maybe you just don't have enough time for the people that matter most to you because you're constantly 
working. There's no rest. There's no margin. There's no space. Again, I'm not advocating a one-size-fits-all that everybody has to do the exact same thing. I'm certain it'll look different in your life than it will look in mine. But do you have an idea when the rhythm of rest is out of balance for you? If, you, if you're married, does your spouse know when your life is out of balance? Maybe they'd be someone to ask. When your work-life balance is not quite there. The longer that we succumb to overworking, the larger toll it will take on our soul and we will live restless, hurried lives that simply do not know the goodness of God's provision because we're rushed and hurried all the time. We don't know how to rest. We don't know how to receive from God. Can I suggest that a renewed commitment to God to rebuild your life around the things of God might indeed include a rigorous effort to maintain a healthy work-life balance where there's rest and Sabbath back in your day, back in your week, month, that you have a rhythm where you know where you can go. The Hebrew people recommitted themselves to holiness and purity in their relationships and to establish this balance of rest in their rhythms of life. But one third one that I want to point us out to, and that they commit themselves to steward their resources for the house of God. There's this important truth as we dive into this one that's necessary for us to understand with reflect to our resources. And that is that everything that we see and everything that we have all belongs to God. And we are called to steward what he's entrusted us. We're called to use it for his glory's sake, for it all belongs to him. The psalmist writes it this way in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So that all that we see belongs to the Lord. It is to be used and stewarded so that people would understand and our priorities are to worship him with everything that we have. So we're not primarily the owners of anything. We're primarily the stewards. We're the stewards of using our resources that have been given to us in a way that honors God. But our culture and the culture of the Hebrew people lures us to believe that it's our responsibility to acquire more, that having more, to own more, will bring lasting joy. But once again, our culture overpromises and underdelivers because it doesn't bring lasting joy or contentment or anything else. I've done several funerals over the years, and I've yet to do one where all the stuff that's been acquired over the years fits in the casket with the person that goes right with them. It's true, right? He who dies with the most toys still dies, right? But it, you do take something with you. You do take the condition of your soul. You do take who you have become Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Forfeit his soul. The Israelites recognized that overconsumption impeded their life with God when they did not steward their resources for God's glory, for God's sake, and they used it for their own sake and for their own, and they stopped being generous. They stopped being giving. They stopped being serving, and they began to just kind of consume and consume, and overconsumption was dangerous and deathly to their soul. So they renewed a commitment to steward their resources for the glory of God and for the good of his house. 
for the church, for the people of God. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 37, and I'll give you 39. We will bring this to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first, the first of our ground meal and of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees and our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. And then verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. God has established this principle that the worship of God is to be provided for through the people of God. That the people of God are to bring about the worship of God. That we are to provide for one another. And as God's people, we're invited to follow into God's ways of living. There is no one who is more giving than God. No one is more giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And yet he invites us to be giving people, to be stewards who learn to be generous with our things, with our financial resources, with everything that he has given us. He's invited us to be generous with that. There's no one that's more gifted than God. God's been gifted with everything. He has every ability at all, and yet he's gifted each of us with unique abilities and talents and, and ways of understanding. And yet it was our abilities that we bring together in the church both our gifts and our abilities that were brought to the church for God designs the church and God's fellowship, God's people to be served and to be uplifted by God's people. To not be consumers where we just sit in the back and just passively receive what other people give, but we are to be participants. And the Israelite people recognize that they have been over-consuming, that they've just been sitting in the back waiting for more consumption and passive consumers rather than active participants in their generosity and their giving in their serving. And they've just been sitting back. And they have a renewed commitment to not be over-consuming and not be primarily consumers, but to be givers, to be servers, to be generous with their time and their abilities and even their financial resources to give that to the church, to give it to the people of God, to make sure that the worship of God is taken care of and, is, and held together and, and everything is for God's glory. Again, if I can bring that to our day, contextualize it for our day, we've been conditioned by our con culture at large to primarily see ourselves as consumers and evaluate as if we're the customer and the customer's always right. And as long as we remain distant and as a consumer, as a customer, we will not grow towards Christ-likeness, which leads us to generosity and service and participation. If we want to experience the eternal goodness and significance that life of Jesus has given us, it's not simply by consuming, it's participating, it's giving, it's serving, it's plugging in. With everything that we have, every gift that God has given you has been stewarded for his glory. Every financial resource has been stewarded for his ability. For everything that I can do is not sitting back and being consuming, but being an active participant. How can I grow? for the benefit of God and for his people. Generosity has always been a mark of the early church, of growing healthy church. Generosity with our time, with our abilities and our finances, to grow in these ways to give and to serve, to not come to be served, right, but to serve. And notice that none of that is out of compulsion. 
No one is coming to the Israelite people, forcing them to do this. It's out of great joy and a response of God's greatness of who he is and the work that he has done that we bring all of who we are before the throne of Jesus and we worship him through giving and stewarding our stuff for his glory. So let me ask us the kind of obvious and uncomfortable question. As we looked at these three areas, that the Israelites recommitted themselves, do you sense the Holy Spirit nudging you? Do you sense the Holy Spirit nudging you and say, yeah, maybe I've been off in one of these areas. I have a desire to have my life grow and have it built on the pursuing the holiness of God, and yet one or more of these areas of one ways that I, I have not yet been growing as I need to. Perhaps a, today is a time of recommitment to pursuing Jesus. A recommitment to holiness in your relationships. You recognize that the people that you've brought into those inner circles are not pulling you towards Christ. They're pulling you to other things. Perhaps today's a day when you recommit those relationships that you're going to prioritize holiness relationships. Maybe you mark your communication card today and drop it in the offering boxes and say, I want to be a part of a small group or a, a life group. I want to be a part of a place where people know me and I want, I want those kind of inner circle people in my life. Maybe today's a day of recommitment in that. Maybe it's a conversation that you and your spouse have on the way home and how do we have our married life help us to be more holy and help us to grow towards Christ. And maybe you start a good conversation with your spouse today. Maybe it's a renewed commitment to engage in some sort of rest, Sabbath, and to engage in a rhythm of your week and in your month where you say, I'm going to make sure we have a good work-life work balance, healthy balance here. And perhaps it's, it's honoring God through the generosity of your gifts and your abilities and your financial resources. You've been withholding that perspective of your life with Jesus, but you're recognizing if I need to build my life, I need to participate and serve and be generous with my stuff. I'm just trusting that somehow the Spirit of God is nudging you in one or more of these areas. It's different for each of us. It's different for each of us in different parts of our life. But it's good on a regular basis to take inventory of our soul and to recognize where do we need to make adjustments and, and recommitment to pursuing a life with God. We're letting these distractions go away. So here's what I'm going to do for us this morning. I'm going to give us just a moment of, of kind of quiet, silent prayer. Just a few seconds, really, not a long time. But I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit Say, God, which one of these three are you asking of me? Which one of these three do I need to take steps of intentionality and effort towards? And just see what God does. Just see what God does. It's different for everybody. We're in different places, and God's got different things in us. What's, what's important is not that we all take the same step, but that we all take a step. Does that make sense? We don't have to take the same. But God's inviting you to a deeper, more abundant life where you have all that he has given you. 
that we would steward everything for his glory, our relationships, our work, our finances, all of it. So take a couple seconds, quiet reflection, ask the Holy Spirit that. I'll close in prayer, and then Jason and the team will lead us in a concluding song. Jesus, we need you today. We need your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, and your power. We thank you that you have not given up on any of us, but your invitation is for depth and for life, that we may restructure our life around your word. And may it bring us contentment, joy, peace. And may we experience the goodness of your grace. Pray that we would take the courageous step of obedience in one way to just begin to rebuild our life around you and your priorities. And may you be faithful and meet us where we are and lead us to a deeper life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.